Welcome to the About Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu, and you can find me at www.aboutsexpodcast.com. You can also find me as a therapist at www.therapistinstlouis.com. Now today, we have David Singer, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a sex therapist. And you can find him at lakinkshrink.com. I love it, lakinkshrink. So hey, David, it is good to have you here. I, it's great to be here, Angela. I, uh, I've been looking forward to this. Did you do some brainstorming for that website or like, did you just have it in your <laughs> wheelhouse? You're like, I'm doing this. This is going to be me. <laughs> I, I like, I came up with that, uh, name like years before I actually really kind of refocused my practice to, to work with folks in the kink and ethical non-monogamy world. So I just kind of hung onto it because I just thought it was fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and then eventually I'm like, hey, I should probably use this. And yeah. there you go. You better get that URL before it's gone, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I was I was I was lovingly caressing the URL for years. It was like, oh, you know, I guess I actually can can do something with this. And there you go. All right. Now before we get into this next conversation, I just want to stop to give us a word from our new sponsors. So I am now working with a really cool company called Let's Get Checked. You can find them at TRILGC.com slash stay kinky. What's really cool about this company actually is that they're doing testosterone testing for men and hormone checks for men and women. A lot of people are struggling with hormonal imbalances and reduced testosterone levels, which really can impact your sex life. And so more and more men and women are trying to test their hormone levels to see how they're doing. One in four men over 30 are actually low in testosterone. Symptoms you might want to look at include fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, even having a hard time making decisions, which is basically most of my client population. (laughs) Just teasing. But I mean, enough of you who come see me are actually really struggling with testosterone levels and your sex drive. So what's cool about this group is you can pick from either a male hormone test kit, a female hormone test kit, or an STD test kit. And what's really cool is they send it right to you in your home. You do what you need to do to take the test. And depending on what test you use, you'll either have to do a blood sample or a blood sample and a urine sample. And then you send it back and everything's completely confidential. And basically they deliver to your home, they collect your sample, they review your results for you. So depending on what happens with your test, they may provide a prescription in some cases. Usually it would only be for something like if they're treating STDs. If you do end up having some something longer term like hormone therapy, then you'll likely be referred to a longer term provider. But at least you'll know where you stand. So it's really cool. Your results are available and they'll be reviewed by a physician. And then a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. The Let's Get Checked Laboratories are CLIA approved and everything is completely anonymous. So again, that website is trylgc.com slash staykinky and use the coupon code staykinky to get 20% off. Excellent. Well, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Okay. Well, so I am, like you said, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in Los Angeles. I see clients uh, all across California with telehealth and, uh, and I'm a sex therapist. And I primarily work with folks that are in the kink community or folks that are involved in or experimenting with or curious about um, ethical non-monogamy. And 
So we work with those things, but a lot of times I also see clients on issues that have nothing to do with any of that, like, you know, depression or anxiety, because really, how can you not have anxiety these days? I think um, this whole and, year has just uh, been a balloon of anxiety. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yes, and, and, and depression and pretty much everything bad. But um, mm-hmm. uh, But they like the idea that they don't have to hide that aspect from me, right? They can, mm-hmm. even if... Like sometimes vanilla therapists, if I may use the phrase, will like if they find out a client is is involved in a non-monogamous relationship or is involved in kink, will make that like the focus. Like, well, obviously this means there's trauma or something uh-huh. like that. And I know better. <laughs> you know, I've actually <laughs> done the research or read the research. So. Anyway, well, let's talk a little bit about my, that. I'm curious why sure. you think people do make that connection that people involved in kink have some kind of trauma history. I think it's kind of taught in therapy school, to be honest with you. Um, I was just recently telling the story. I have, I have a, a Back when I was in training, it was either in the master's or doctoral program, I don't really know which, but I had a colleague who's a good friend and really good. And she happened to be doing a practicum. And so practicum is a thing we do where we see clients before we're licensed and under supervision and stuff like that. And she had a client who was involved in the BDSM scene. Uh, He's a gay male uh, Mm -hmm. masochist. And he told her about um, a zipper. Now, for folks that don't know, (laughs) a zipper is like a, a string of clothespins that are attached to your body, sometimes in somewhat sensitive spaces and then yanked off and it's a strong sensation i am told i am perfectly cool with just hearing about that but <laughs> um <laughs> she she was so flipped out about that 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 became like the lens through which she saw everything and it was a sign that you know there was this need for punishment there was all this thing and even back then, I was like a little baby therapist, right? I mean, I hadn't been licensed yet. But even back then, I remember thinking, no, no, <laughs> no. He gets off on that sensation. That's, that's, that's about like it. Separate. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear my cat. He wants to be part of the, uh, of the conversation, too. Talk about a masochist. Cats are pretty close to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a cat and kink metaphor that I'll come back to at some point if you allow me. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm interested. Yeah, but so to your... Ahead. I got you. Well, that's good. But, I mean, to your point, it sounds like, yeah, like sometimes when something seems a little out of ordinary or, or strange to a therapist, then they can really focus in on that, especially when it comes to sexuality. And I mean, we have some roots like in our mental health field with Freud. I mean, he spent a lot of time exploring sexuality. Not necessarily right. I want to make, make, make clear to people, but just there was a lot of, there's been an interest, I guess, in dissecting human sexuality probably from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because it's fascinating, right? It's like one of the, I, I was always interested in knowing about sex. I mean, you know, as an adolescent boy, I perhaps had a different perspective about what I meant by that than I do now. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so, it's so like under under the, the hood, right? It's so in the, the heart of our actions that really fuel a lot of the things we do. And I always have wanted to understand that and wanted to kind of get to see what's, what's, what's the engine, what's driving it. And um, I, I, I truly love the work. 
Well, that's awesome. So, I mean, it sounds like your your basic thought is, no, it's not necessarily trauma-related. Sometimes people just have kinks, and that's okay. And actually, sometimes people see you because they want to be around somebody who's not going to judge them for having their kinks. They just want somebody who gets it. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's my thoughts, but it's also the research. I mean, that, that is what frustrates me with therapists that pathologize kink. Like, if they actually just did some research. There has been research on this issue and it finds re- really very low correlational relationship, which means there's, you know, there's no necessarily association. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, some people in kink have had trauma. Also, some people in kink happen to drive Hyundais. Neither <laughs> one had much to do with the other. I'm a little concerned um, about driving a Hyundai, to be fair. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm not getting involved in that. Debate. But, um, and then, but then they go the next step to go to a causal thing that it's like acting out your trauma or something. And for some people, they do use kink to try to work through some trauma. And that's okay. I think usually if it's like something deep, it's important to, to also have, you know, the work with a professional. But again, some people do that. Some people are left-handed. It, again, there's no correlational link, and there's no causal link at all. And the, the evidence and the studies show that. It's not just me, you know, sitting here on a phone saying, no, trust me. Well, and to be fair, too, I mean, even in, in vanilla, you mentioned vanilla. So vanilla worlds, there's ju- there's just as many people who have trauma histories as people who don't. Absolutely. Trauma is kind of a part of the human condition. So it's an unfair yep. correlation to put on somebody who just has the like a kink. Although I will say the zipper kink, that's new. I mean, I it's not new in that I knew it existed, but I just didn't know the name of it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's, that's fun. So like what there's, kinds of, oh, go on, what were you going to say? <laughs> no, no, I just, there's so many kinks. It's, and I, I, um. Each time someone tells me what their kink is, I'll be like, oh, that's interesting. I, I never heard of that. And sometimes it's like, oh, I wonder what that'd be like. And sometimes I don't want to know what that'd be like. But <laughs> either way, it's all cool. You know the expression, your kink is not my kink. That's fine. Yeah. Well, actually, just for fun, why don't you give us a handful of kinks? Like, you know, three or four that you're like, well, that's interesting. Because people always ask me that. So I'm curious since you're working with the kinks. <laughs> What's a handful? Well, I, I, <laughs> this, this one did not come to me through a client. This came to me from me actually doing a podcast and talking with this woman who's a, um, a porn actress. And she was talking, so it's like this telephone chain. So she was doing an interview with someone who's a, also a kink therapist. And he was telling her about this kink. This is so disgusting. I don't even believe I'm going there. But anyway, Whatever. <laughs> the kink was to take um, feces and freeze them and use them as a dildo. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) that that was pretty much my reaction too. like, okay, but I guess they kind of worked, you know, thought through and, you know, teased it out and stuff and came to the conclusion that, that it was like this person that was into small penis humiliation. Hmm. So that, I guess worked for, you know, and if it worked for him mm-hmm. and it worked for his partners, God knows why, but if it did, um, cool. Right. I mean, not me to judge. And if it works for them, it doesn't, but I mean, I've had clients with, you know, all sorts of kinks, all sorts of fetishes, uh, and a client who's really into 
the whole sleepy sex phenomenon where it's it can be played and you see videos like this like the time lapse thing where you know somebody can stop time so the person is the person is just sort of immobile because time isn't moving but you know the person can do different things to him or her Hmm. and um that was a big turn on for him and same thing we like explored some to see if there's there there if there's some, some something that is causing problems and it wasn't and we moved on to other stuff can i ask you what are ways that you like so that that would be something i think that helps people kind of understand so like how what are the models you kind of use to explore like safe sane consensual or something or i'm curious what models you kind of use to give people a framework essentially well i i do you know do believe in safe sane and consensual i'm also okay with the concept of, of rack, you know, risk-aware consensual kink. Okay. Um, I think the whole thing is if it's not harming anybody, it's not putting anybody in danger, and it's all among consenting adults, cool. Mazel. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, uh, you know I, and sometimes there'd be people that are really troubled because they think something's wrong with them because mm-hmm. of their case. Or they think something's wrong with them because the, of the porn they watch or the amount of porn they watch. And there's, you know, this whole concept of porn addiction, which also studies don't back up at all. Um, so sometimes it, it, when we explore with the clients and actually spend time on their kink or their their fetishes or their interests, a lot of it is honestly just to help heal this kind of internalized shame they feel about this thing that is so natural and nothing to be ashamed of. So, you know, when we were talking a little bit about like safe, sane, consensual and risk aware, like for people who aren't aware of what those things are, because not everybody who listens to my show is actually kink aware. I mean, like a lot of times some people are in that more vanilla category. And so they're listening like as a shock value sort of thing. Right. But so for some, the one model is more about like making sure everybody is sane, everybody's trying to stay safe. But the interesting difference between that and risk aware is that some of these things do pose some risks. No, you're not going to die, but you like when you do rip a clothespin out of your body, you know, you can bleed and and it can be painful. Right. So like the risk aware aspect is, no, you know, there are risks, but you're aware of the risks. You like the risks. You're getting something out of it in some way. And of course, it's still consensual and and you're moving forward, <laughs> correct? Right. And you've you've done steps to kind of uh, mitigate the risk, right? It's not just yeah. like, well, screw it. We'll just see what the hell happens. I mean, you've you've, you've gotten <laughs> some training, you've learned, um, you know, and you know safety techniques. You know? Mm-hmm. I, one thing I do love about well, there's a bazillion things I love about the King community, but one thing that, like, I know when I was getting involved in the scene myself, like people would so talk about like, you know, do you have your medical bag? And I'm like, not, nah, you know, the uh, medical play isn't really my thing. No, that's fine. Like, no, dude, you like, if something goes wrong, you need to have this, 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 and this. And they were so adamant about safety and mm-hmm. that safety first. And I loved that. I, I still love that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I mean, one of my first kink stories in my own world, you know, as a therapist was I was working with the stripper and she and her partner would engage in a type of scalpel play. Um, but like that mm-hmm. was a big part of it. So they made sure that there was alcohol there. They, they had to make sure that the scalpels wouldn't go too deep into the skin. And they actually, like they studied where can you cut? Where should you avoid? And and at first when I heard it, I was like, oh my God, this is sound like it did. It freaked, it freaked my shit out. I was like overwhelmed <laughs> by it at first, even though I was a sex therapist, just because I'd never heard anything like that. Yep. But Absolutely. when I heard that they were taking that risk and like they they didn't even do it one night because they didn't have the right length of scalpels, like they are putting effort and thought into it. And so over time, I was able to kind of see it as a more um, complicated form of tattooing, which people do tattooing all the time, you know, and we don't necessarily say, well, that person has trauma. But I mean, they are inflicting pain on themselves for that colorful display correct and so well, i just when you think of it pain is is sensation it is so it's sensation play and we all like sensation we all i mean usually i mean i guess most of us are kind of wired to to like what we would consider quote unquote positive sensation but this is all sensation and uh, yeah no i've i've I have seen scalpel play, and I think it's very cool to watch, and I don't want to do it. <laughs> but you can watch and understand from compersion why somebody else might enjoy that, and you're giving them a little bit of a space to do. Absolutely. And the fact that you actually use compersion in a sentence makes you my new favorite human being. <laughs> Look, I've been thinking a lot about compersion lately, but so for listeners who don't know what compersion is, it's basically when you can take pleasure off of someone else's pleasure. You're not engaged in it in any sort of way. You're just observing it. You're engaged maybe in the way that you interact with it. Like I've been playing around with compersion and geek geek stuff, like geeking out. That is one of my most typical forms of compersion is when somebody geeks out about something I don't understand, but I get an excitement and an erotic rush watching somebody geek out about like D&D or watching them geek out about Star Wars and them getting so like, because it's like, it's almost like their own turn on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, you, well, not Star Wars, but you can't see this, but I'm, uh, I am drinking coffee out of my Death Eaters cup because my partner is huge into everything Harry Potter. So, and we've gone, <laughs> we went to a, a Harry, boy, am I off topic, but anyway, it's we all went right. to a Harry Potter convention. Now, I hadn't even read all the books at this point, mm-hmm. which is bad because I found out all the, I mean, it was just like spoiler after spoiler. After spoiler <laughs> You're like, oh no, I can't read this stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but to watch how excited she was about this and, and they had like wizard rock, which is the uh-huh. kind of specific music that the Harry Potter fans love. And to watch her get so into those bands and she had known these bands <laughs> for years and stuff. And it was, it was exactly that. Like, I don't necessarily get this, but I love how happy you are. Yeah, I love watching the Zen, basically seeing somebody yep. in that Zen space. And I think that's what compersion is to me personally. And also a little bit, it is what it is. But, you know, it's that ability to watch somebody in their pleasure and their joy and get something out of that, just even from afar as a spectator. And I do love that about compersion. And I think, you know, for the kink world where people can start to develop like an understanding, you don't, you've been saying it all along, but it's like, I don't know if it's for me, but I could see why it might be for you. Cool. Good for you. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just fun to watch what different people get into and just to, and to watch that 
you know, it's such a cliche word in the kink world, that energy exchange, because there really mm-hmm. is. And when, when people are deep in a scene, be it like a flogging scene, or even if it's just honestly like a, a power exchange, master slave, dom sub thing, you can, you can, it's, I feel like it's, you can feel the energy. It's like, like an electric, you know, crackle going on between them. And it's, it's just awesome. Yeah, it's inspiring. You know, I mean, actually, this makes me think of, so I forgot your uh, questionnaire in front of me, and you said you blatantly steal from kink relationships for your work with vanilla relationships. So I'm I'm very curious Absolutely. what you steal from kink that helps the vanilla world. <laughs> well, so one of the things I love about kink relationships, kink relationships have so many rituals quite often, right? So like, you know, like a master slave ritual when, when people, you know, that you go out into the, in theory, more egalitarian world, right. And you're out at your job and you function at that, whatever you are at that position and you go out, you know, all these different things. And then when you come back to the house and you're going to go into this role that you have consented to and that you're into of, of master or as slave or dominant or submissive, a lot of times they'll have like a, a reconnection ritual. Like it might be kneeling with a collar or something. They'll do something to really ritualize and make more meaningful, I think, that transition from outside to private inside worlds. And I want vanilla people to do that. You know, it's so many times in relationships and vanilla relationships, it becomes on such autopilot and you come home. I I used to make the joke because it's true. You, you come home and you, and you, you greet your animals like, Oh, you're such a good boy. How are you? Oh my God. And then you see your partner and it's like, it's like, Hey, "Hey." (laughs) and you go on. And so, no, I steal that. I really try to create rituals or not create, I don't create them, but I really encourage my clients to create their rituals. Even if it's a completely vanilla, quote unquote, normal, you know, Aussie and Harriet got a bold. But anyway, uh, relationship. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, um, I've definitely not seen that show, but I'm aware, I'm aware of the reference. I, in my defense, <laughs> I had heard of it. But anyway. Um, <laughs> you don't um, have to defend yourself. I'll attack you anytime. <laughs> but those rituals are so important. Mm-hmm. And and if you're in a kink, whether it's a relationship or even a scene, like when you're going to play, uh, you're going to do something, you're going to have some experience. There's all of this negotiation. There's all of this communication. Well, what do you like? That'll be like something that gets asked before a scene. Like, well, what would you like to get out of this scene? What is it that you don't want to experience in this scene um you know do you have any kind of medical conditions that i need to know about that level of intense communication i want that for everybody mm-hmm. I, I i you know forgive me kink people i don't want you to have that all on your own i, <laughs> I want my complete vanilla clients to have that level of communication that uh, intensity of intimacy and um and the rituals. So yeah, no, I completely steal from all of that. Oh, uh, safe words. Oh, I yeah. do argument safe words. So again, for non-king folks, so safe word is the idea like if a scene is getting to be too much, like you just need the, the nope, 
either you just need a, like a little bit of time to kind of calm down or you're like, oh, hell no, this is not what I want. Mm-hmm. You do a safe word and that stops the scene. I do argument safe words with clients. You're getting in an argument. You're getting so ratcheted up mm-hmm. um, that, you know, you're, you can feel like the blood pounding and stuff. You're not going to be able to have a cogent discussion then. You're going to get into the win or lose thing, fight and flight. So I try to get clients to do argument safe words and to make something fun. Like I had a, a, I had a client, I, I don't know where it came from, but they, they made dongle the, uh, <laughs> their safe word because it was a funny word to them. I had a. So, co- I actually had a father and son pick testicles because it was funny and weird, but it was enough yeah. to kind of jolt the system. But they were using yeah. a safe word when the fight would get too intense. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you do it too. I mean, I, so I think yeah. that's really cool. Do the safe word, but then also set a time. That's part of it too. It can't just be like safe word. Okay, we're done with this discussion. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. How about them Red Sox? Um, <laughs> you have to do. Um, you know, you set a time. You say, you know what, let's talk about, I, I need, I need to calm down. Let's talk about this in an hour. Yeah. Well, cause let's if people don't know when they're going to come back, there's an anxiety right. around and then people won't follow through with the boundary. But to your point, right. I think it's really valuable for people to learn to set and keep boundaries. Like that's another thing. I think that sometimes, I mean, many people, not just, van- I was going to say vanilla, but I was like, actually a lot of people struggle sometimes to set and keep boundaries. So I'd say it's oh, like a yeah. global thing people need to work yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> agree. One thing I wanted to draw back to that, I, you know, I really like what you were talking about is that ritual reconnection. It's funny you say it like that too, because even me and my partner, whenever we're trying to make it a nice night, we say, let's reconnect tonight. Let's find a way to slow down and reconnect. And I do, I love the idea of that ritual, like what are the ways that we're slowing down and we're creating an intimate space that like, and what's cool about making it ritual is I think that your body starts to habitually learn to slow down or get into that head space when it becomes ritualistic like that, right? Like, so if your ritual is to hang out and um, maybe start by turning the TV off and just talking to each other, for example, that ritual of slowing down and reconnecting over time, you almost like habitually train yourself to relax and get into that head space when you're there. Whereas if there is no ritual, then people are moving from this idea of, we're just living in our day-to-day lives too. I guess it's sex time now and there's no transition space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I do, I, I, I so agree with you and I love that you do that with your partner. I, I think it makes, it, it, it's a mindfulness. And I know that, I know the term mindfulness has now been applied to everything in the world. I know it is definitely it, the pop word of the uh, yeah. decade. <laughs> but there's a reason for that. There and is. And, you know, to have mindfulness in relationship, I think for so many people, it's it's easy to just, you know, play that game on easy mode and not really focus on this super important part of your life. And it deserves more attention than that. And it, it needs more attention than that. It does. I think it's really hard when people have this big chasm between sex and day to day, you know, like finding a way to bring a flow between the two is kind of important because if, I don't know, it's just really hard if you don't have some kind of transitionary space. So I do love that, like a kind of conscious reconnection. But I mean, to your point, I think also people aren't very mindful. We've, we've almost trained ourselves out of that too. It's like, I got to constantly be entertained to be doing this next thing. 
So it sounds like New you steal a lot. You know, bing, bing, bing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I work with a concept I call erotic mindfulness. Okay. Um, and the idea of that is it's, it's well, therapist to therapist. It's basically sensate exercises. It's basically the idea of touching in a meaningful way. So it's not sex. I mean, if it leads to sex, it's not like I yell at my clients, say, how dare you? That wasn't the exercise. But <laughs> it's the idea of touching and being in that moment, right? So not so. I have clients that watch, that cuddle and watch TV and stuff, and that's great. But do the, let's do this in addition to. There's nothing else. It's that touching. It's caressing each other's hair. It's caressing each other's body. It's just lying, you know, big spoon, little spoon, whatever it is for you. But spend some time connecting physically. And just, I, I do agree with you that it's it's that transition. And I also think it's what you said too. I think our minds make meaning out of that and it takes on a power. And when it's repeated and repeated, it becomes such a connection. And I think it's really, really powerful. I agree with you. So I'm wanting to do a little uh, dive into something uh, something else that you kind of put on your questionnaire here, which is just a consensual yeah. non-monogamy. Because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a topic a lot of people are very interested in. It's another one of those like kink that people are like, who's doing this? Is there something wrong with them? Or whatever, you know. You know how everybody <laughs> thinks yeah. about sex that's not stuff they're doing. But so yep. one of the things you mentioned is that there are a lot of people who identify as non-monogamous and there's a lot of different kinds. And I'm curious if you would be willing to go into that a little bit. Sure. Well, okay. So research shows that there's like 4.5, about 5% of the U.S. population considers themselves currently ethically non-monogamous. So they may be they, they may not be with more than one partner. They may not be with any partner, but their mindset is the idea of ethical non-monogamy, which is simply, you know, it's okay to have sex with more than one person as long as everyone is aware. Now, that 45 to 5%, that's pretty much the exact same percentage as people that identify as LGBTQI+. That's the same thing. And it's great that there is so much awareness. It didn't, you know, like I already mentioned, I'm old. There was a time when this wasn't there. It's great that there's so much awareness about LGBTQ+. It really is great. It's great that every city has an LGBTQ center. That's all great. But the folks that are ethically non-monogamous I think so many times feel like they are the lone ranger. There is no one else that is doing this. I have no idea what to do, and there is no guide. And the fact of the matter is, it's the same percentage. And they're they're not, I mean, they're alone right now just because they haven't been able to find the resources because they're, you know, you have to work at it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the, the fact that there is that number I mean, to do the comparison, that's twice as many people uh, as identify as Jewish in the United States. Hmm. That's, that's I didn't know that. People. That is a lot of people, though. <laughs> and, and, and so when I was talking about, um, about different types of non-monogamy, so like, you know, polyamory has become very um, 
trendy, for better or for worse. <laughs> and the idea of polyamory is, you know, literally multiple loves, right? Polyamory, multiple loves. So the idea that you can have ethically and consensually more than one relationship. Um, and that's fine. That's one way of doing it. There's also all this other stuff. There's like, you know, you can have a, you can have your relationship and have, you know, friends with benefits, sex buddies on the side. And that's fine as long as everybody knows about it. There's swinging, right? Where you want to, yes, you want to have sex with other people, but you want to do it together. Okay, cool. That's that. There's like the whole hot wife phenomenon or cuckolding, I guess, is the new trendy term. But like, you know, the guy that really gets into seeing his partner with somebody else. That guy likes yeah. has definitely has the compersion factor. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and and it's it's just hot. <laughs> there's just a hot factor, I think. Um, but anyway, so there's so many different ways to do non-monogamy, and honestly, there's as many ways to do non-monogamy as there are people. You just figure out what the structure is that works for you. I think sometimes people now feel like this pressure, like like it's a, a I don't know. It's a gradient, right? And, you know, polyamory is the, that's the gold standard. That's how you should be doing it. And no, no, that's fine for some people. That may not be fine for you. You may not want that. Cool. Just work it through. Yeah, I think there's so many different ways I've seen it too. Like some of the clients I've personally worked with are people who were in sexless marriages at times. And I know like a lot of people kind of have value systems around um, how this should be done. But when I did my own research on it, I know that there's kind of two different things that maybe sometimes start people when they've started in a monogamous relationship. Some are interested and they talk through it and make it happen. And others are kind of compelled into it because they find that they're not feeling that sexual interaction or attraction anymore, but they still love each other. And that's one way that they're trying to cope with it. And I don't know that I, you know, like obviously as a therapist, I often see people who are struggling with something, right? But um, I've also had a really cool opportunity through friends and, and colleagues to also see aspects of it where it's not necessarily a problem, but where it is making it, they're making it work. It's not like they're in therapy for it. You know, like you were talking about, sometimes they're just in there because they want you to understand them, but they're fine with their lifestyle and nothing's problematic. But I, I think it's, it's interesting to think about how like sometimes poly or open relationships are a way of keeping and maintaining a relationship that's more, um, that is friendly still, or that is, that's close and co-parenting, but that still allows people to kind of explore sexually outside of that marriage since they're not they're not feeling it anymore. What are your thoughts about that though? I do think that that happens and I think you know you talk about sometimes they're really struggling over that and I think one of the parts of the struggle sometimes is the is the shoulds. Mm -hmm. I I you know, one of my soapboxes, and if any of my clients are listening, they're like, oh, God, here he goes, because I talk about <laughs> this a lot. Um, but but one of my soapboxes is if I had the power to eliminate a word, I, I want should out of the language. The should does not add anything to our language, and it only detracts. So I think one reason sometimes that couples in that situation struggle is because of the shoulds. Like, you know, we... This shouldn't be the problem. We shouldn't, you know, be in the sexless marriage. We shouldn't have had our feelings and wants and needs evolve. And, 
you know, so what I'll do in a situation like that is I'll work with, you know, if it's a relationship, uh, they're both coming in to see me together, they two or three or whatever the numbers is. Um, I'll work with that to see if, you know, if there are ways to rekindle within the relationship, if that's what they want to try to do. But I also really work on the try to get rid of the shoulds. You guys love each other. You are committed to staying together. That's awesome. Okay, right now, your sexual connection isn't working, but it's still so important for you to maintain your emotional connection. That's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. Let's figure out ways that that can work. Yeah, I agree to that. And I think that in some cases, when people can get rid of those shoulds and just kind of accept things for what they are, they can still get a lot out of those relationships. Actually, some of the most interesting ones I've I've learned about are like asexual people who, you know, they, they just kind of accept, I'm just not a very sexual person. I still want to have a relationship in some way, but it's not something that I want to engage in sexually often or even at all. At times, I'm more of a cuddler, for example. And so I'll often find asexual people in poly or open, not consensual, non-monogamous relationships because they can get a piece of that from somebody, but then maybe that other partner isn't asexual, so they want to have a partner outside of that. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, and I've, I've worked with relationships like that as well, and it's a, I think it's so kind of, I don't know, it's really beautiful. I, I, I don't mean to sound all like, you know, pie in the sky, but it's really beautiful when people can find their own solutions to work through these things instead of saying, well, screw it, this ain't working, let's move on. And, you know, this one thing, which, you know, I get that sex is an important thing, but it's to, to not go like, okay, this one thing isn't working, so I'm going to throw out all of these things that are instead of staying with what is working and finding a solution, a workaround for the part that isn't. You know, I'm really curious. Usually people ask me this question and I want to ask you it too. I mean, what got you into this field? <laughs> okay, well, um, uh, okay, well, short story, a short answer, long answer. But uh, the short answer is just honestly, in from the beginning with my training, I one of my first clients was a sex worker one of my first clients was um, someone in a consensually, well, they were swingers, uh, consensually non-monogamous relationship. Um, so I just got exposed to that really early on. Uh, I'm also involved in both of those scenes. You know, I'm, I have been in the BDSM lifestyle for <clears throat> a few years, um, and uh, I am in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. So that's the short answer. The long answer is um, I was in a relationship. It was a, a BDSM relationship. And um, we were really strong. I hadn't, this was <clears throat> a long time ago, and I didn't really know about the concept of consensual non-monogamy. And then when I heard of it, it was like this thing, it was like this really seriously, this aha moment. Like, yes, that, that is what I wanted. Um and she didn't. And we really struggled. And we went to a therapist. And he was a kink therapist. He's a, a, a gay leather slave mm-hmm. who's a therapist. And he's a good therapist. Well, good. But he, he basically said, um, you know, hey, to, to my partner, hey, you signed up for this master slave thing. So 
if he says you're non-monogamous, you're non-monogamous. And my initial thought was like, best therapist ever. Uh, you know, like basically everything I say is right. God bless you. I, I don't pay you enough money, sir. Um, I don't think I'd call him sir. That would freak him out. But um, eventually I really saw her struggles. And I told him in a session once that I thought him telling her that she had to be non-monogamous would be as disrespectful as if I told him he had to be straight. Yeah. And I learned from that, that a, we need more therapists that understand non-monogamy. And I also do think that, and I have no science on this one. I, you know, the beginning was talking about all this research and stuff. I do think that people are wired monogamous or non-monogamous almost as much as you're wired straight or gay. And like that, it's not a binary, right? It's a, it's a continuum. Spectrum. And you can be anywhere along that kind of continuum. I actually but, um, agree with you on this. Cause I, just to add to the, I mean, I want to hear more from you, but like, I, I do think there's a certain kind of wiring and I don't think we have enough research to kind of back it up. But like, I've definitely seen just there's elements to people who fit better in a non-monogamous world. One I see is low being lower on the sexual jealousy scale. Another mm-hmm. one is having high compersion, the ability to kind of see uh, joy from other people's pleasure. But also another one that I see is kind of an ability to separate sex and love at times. Not, not always, because I can see people who in the open relationship who don't separate sex and love, but are capable of having sex and love for multiple people and in terms of like the polyamorous people. But like for swingers, for example, there's an ability to kind of separate it. It's just sex and it's not, it's not as personal. And I see extroverted tendencies too and adrenaline seeking. <laughs> like I do yeah. feel like there's some wiring and none of, none of these are negative or me shaming. Like these are like, I just see differences that I think, I think you're right. I just don't know where they are yet. And there's not enough research I think to back it up yet. <laughs> and that has made for some of the most difficult work that I've had to do, which is with a client that they're, they're in relationship and they're trying to open it up and it's exploding. It's not working. And I'll, I really try to spend some time teasing that out with them. Like, like, so sometimes people will think when it's brand new, right, this, they're just going into this. Well, I'm feeling really jealous. That must mean I can't do this. And that's, that's not true. Sure. Um, jealousy is something to work through. I, I tell people the, the really good thing about consensual non-monogamy is it gives you an opportunity to really, really explore yourself and really work through your shit. Mm-hmm. And the horrible thing about non-monogamy is it really makes you explore yourself and work through your shit. Yeah. Um, so just because it's a struggle doesn't mean it's not working. So we'll, I'll, we'll work with that. But I do think that sometimes some people aren't going to be happy in a non-monogamous relationship and some people aren't going to be happy in a monogamous relationship. And then it becomes really, you know, hard choice points about mm-hmm. what, where do we go from here? And that, that's a really hard spot. Like in the example I was giving with my relationship, we, you know, we, we were both pretty cool people individually and together we were just hurting each other. And eventually we had to say this, this isn't resolvable for us. And we broke up and it was really sad. Um, 
But then, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I met my partner who is still my partner now, primary partner, and um, and it was a perfect click, you yeah. know? So, you know, <laughs> the whole thing, you know, they have to have the sad to get to the happy. Yeah, well, and I think you need, it's it's a maturity thing to do, right? Like you need to, when you recognize it's just not fitting for you as a couple, then it, to your point, it isn't fair. It isn't fair to ask somebody who truly like just identifies as like, no, monogamy, that is who I am. I can't imagine having sex with another person. I really just want this one person to be my, my it person. Then that it's not fair to ask them to do different. And on this, on the same token, flip that to the person who really feels not that they are consensually non-monogamous. It is very hard for them to conform. Like it feels like a sacrifice to both people when I'm working with them, like and trying to get them to shift. And that is one area that's been a very interesting exploration. Well, so, um, what are we're actually almost towards the end of the show? This one's gone oh, very fast. I, I know. I, I swear we started talking three minutes ago. But okay. I know. I know. <laughs> That's how you know it's a good show. You're like, where did the time fly? Right. <laughs> well, so are there any, I guess, final thoughts that you'd want to leave the listeners about um, who you are or any of these topics we've discussed? Well, let me get, let me, I, cause I had teased the, the uh, BDSM cat metaphor and less people think that I go around beating my cat, which I will tell you would not go well. I thought me. the cat was beating you, but let's learn about it, it. That is that you're not completely <laughs> wrong on that. I, I was thinking about that today. I've, I've had more like, you know, bloodletting injuries with my cat that I've had in decades in the BDSM. Cats scene. are sadists. Anyway, yeah, and, and, and some of it's non-consensual. I need yeah, to talk yeah. to him about that. You guys need to set but, some ground uh, rules. <laughs> for, for folks that do think they're kinky or, or know they're kinky and they feel like there's something wrong with me or I'm so alone. So this is a study back in 2005. So this is before the whole Fifty Shades of Grey thing, which That'll be a whole nother show, so I won't go down that rabbit hole. But so before the whole Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon, 2005, 35% of people surveyed in America said that they had used some kinky stuff in the bedroom. It might be blindfolds, it might be ties, it might be paddles, um, 35%. And that is pretty much the exact same percentage as Americans that have a cap. <laughs> So if, if if you know someone, if, so if you're kinky and you're feeling really alone and no one's like you, if you know anyone that has a cat, statistically speaking, you also know someone that's also in the BDSM. You just, you ain't talking about it. Well, I would just move it further than if you have that kink, then you should probably get a cat too. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm only teasing. Well, hey, David, it was so great to have you on the show. How can people find you? Cool. Thank you. So like you said, my website is LA Kink Shrink. And I guess I sometimes say that without enunciating. So it's L-A-K-I-N-K-S-H-R-I-N-K. LAKinkShrink.com. Mm-hmm. I'm on Facebook as LA Kink Shrink. Um, and um I'm a licensed uh, uh, marriage family therapist in California, which means I can only see clients in California, but I see clients all across the state through telehealth. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And well, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Awesome. That's awesome. And you can find me at www.aboutsexpodcast.com. And as a therapist, you can find me at www.therapistinstlouis.com. Stay kinky, St. Louis.